Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. I'm Marion Manneker, and we're going to explore the mysteries of the global art market. Cheyenne Westfall really needs no introduction. She spent 25 years at Sotheby's as a major figure in the contemporary art department. Earlier this year, she started a new role at Phillips, where she's chairman. In the middle of November, during the New York sales cycle, we sat down and had this discussion about the art market. Cheyenne, thank you for spending some time with me. Pleasure. So we're in the middle of the auctions, but I thought we would take a few minutes to back up and talk about this last year, since this is your second cycle uh, here right. at Phillips. That's right. Yes, I joined Phillips in March and um, and took a sort of year out in between. So it is it is for me the second sales season, and it's um, you know things have changed somewhat, but then the core ingredients are still the same. You know, everybody focuses on New York during those weeks, May and November. We have people coming in from all over the world. Um, it is still, you see galleries putting out their best shows at this time of year. You have the museums with a phenomenal program. And you have clients who really come to partake and see the art. And then, of course, now that we're approaching the actual date, really make decisions on what they're going to be buying this season. What changes is always the clients, the arts, um, the motivation. And it is, um, it's exciting because we're dealing with an ever more globalized world and you really feel it here you mentioned just a second ago motivation mm. and and the changing motivation sure. i wonder if you could talk a little bit more and and it doesn't have to be confined to the last year or two but you know over your career what do you see as the changing motivation in in both buyers and sellers very much so i mean i have been um working in this field for over 25 years and um very much um, throughout the beginning of my career, when you're thinking back 90s, even 2000s, you did not comment on art as investment. Art was there to be bought for enriching you, for building a collection. Should it increase in value, that's a wonderful thing. We would never give an interview on it. We would never talk about it to clients. And it's become now it is um, very much as an asset class that um, that collectors are conscious of. You know, it doesn't mean they're not passionate about the works of art, but they're also looking at, let's call it their portfolio of wealth, and art is a significant part, and they want to understand how it's holding up as well. So you, you do see a change just from, from that over a long period of time. So conversations about art as investment, what is the value, what is the potential, future potential value gain, what are the risks that it might not hold up, is very much part of most conversations now. Does that make it um, harder or easier to uh, uh, sort of keep the plate spinning? Because there, you know, every, everything you sell is also uh, someone you will potentially go and uh, ask them to sell again. And every buyer is a, a, a seller in so, some way. So you know, there's a, a, a mutually reinforcing uh, a positive a- aspect to, to all of this, but you're sort of caught in the middle of balancing that. You are. And, you know, um, if I may backtrack a tiny bit, you know, one of the most exciting things is when you are 
in the situation where you're on the shop floor in the auction room and you're seeing clients all day long. Some you obviously know very well, but some you get introduced to and you have to sort of make a, a very quick decision on what is their motivation. You know, do you really talk to them about, you know, extraordinary expertise and is they, are they going to love it that it was in a Biennale in 1965? Or do they really want you to, to compare value and just say, you know, this is also an artist that has got a long way to go. There are many things happening, museum shows coming. This might be an opportune moment to, to come and look at this work. Or, you know, some collectors also want to compare and say, so who else has got works by Peter Doig in their collections? Who else are the other buyers? You know, who else is in this market and um, and it's fascinating and you you have to be able to have those conversations and to have both your expertise side definitely very solid but also your financial side solid and your awareness of the art market at large. You find it specifically when you've got collectors coming in from outside the US and Europe and you know they're looking at art that um, you know is here very much part of our language um, and they're really trying to understand you know what does what does this mean for us you know is this relevant because it's at MoMA or is it relevant because these collectors here that are very well known have collected these works and so you you know you're bringing people into a fabric it's very interesting In, increasingly uh, a lot of the sales involve um, getting third-party guarantees. That's right. And uh, I assume that means that sort of the process we're talking about coming to a head this week is actually now much longer because you're, you're, you're both going to a potential consigner and when you get interest, then trying to line up a um, guarantee to uh, uh, sort of close the deal. And then from there, either uh, find a buyer or bidders, but also sometimes, you know, in the process, more guarantors as we get closer and, and all. And does that sort of change part of the uh, uh, process and uh, strategy for going after consignments? It can do. I mean, guarantees are very much part of parcel of doing business today. Collectors seek insurance, and we often give insurance in terms of a part uh, in terms of a guarantee. Now, third-party guarantors are also very much part of the business now, and there is a whole number of them that um, that work with us. Some are what I would call professionals, people that are in the business that might be, you know in the gallery world or, you know, very much in the private dealing world. Others are um, collectors that are very specifically motivated for work of art, like bringing it to market. Um, and that can happen with a third party. For instance, if I may backtrack to the auction um, that we have coming up now, we have a really important work by Marlene Duma. And the conversation started with a collector who wanted to acquire one privately and said, but, you know, if you can get me one, because there's so few of them, count on me as a third party if that makes any difference. And that actually allowed us to very specifically go after this particular piece in the sale and bring it, bring it here. So you also have that side where a collector now realizes that um, if I want something that's hard to get, maybe let them partner up with the auction house and make it financially interesting to bring this work to market. Well, that's, it seems like we've created a hybrid 
of public and private sales, where 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 there's a sort of a, a, a transaction is semi-completed, and mm -hmm. then everyone agrees to go public with it and see if there's someone else who wants to come in uh, and and participate at a higher level, which I guess gives sort of upside for everyone. Yeah. So as you, as you quite rightly say, you know, the a guarantee is. A price. So when you agree to a guarantee, in effect, you've sold the picture. But of course, you want the upside. You know, everybody wants the upside. The auction house does, the collector does, the third party does. So there is that, um, there is that extra dimension where you really you work to get more than than your starting bid. Um, it, it, I'm assuming the balance is still primarily with the professionals, you know, either the heavy collectors who know everyone and participate often or real, you know, dealers or other professionals who are backing, you know, for yeah. the sake of, uh, of backing. But it does seem, as, you, as your Dumas example, mm -hmm. that... that the next phase of this is to sort of bring in more potential buyers yeah. as the backers so that, uh, you know, again, it makes must make your life a, 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 a little more interesting because the, the selling season becomes longer and uh, more, more sort of uh, involved. And, you know, you're absolutely right. And it also means that we are driving conversations at times differently, you know, um, in the sense that, when you do speak to collectors and you, 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 you're really talking to the buyers, you know, you want to understand what are they looking for, what might they be stretching for. And once you have those conversations going, of course, you know, our brain immediately thinks, what can we find? <laughs> and, uh, and to bring these two together is, um, is something that is definitely um, an increasing part of the market. And we see new collectors coming in and um, and partaking in this. Um, at the same time, I agree with you, you know, the majority of our partners are, are people that are in the trade. You know, they're also, they are aware sometimes they will own something, other times they will make money, and it's part of their game as well. Well, no, that's that provides so much of the liquidity to the business, uh, is that there are people who are willing to write the check and own it, and uh, that both gives other people confidence, but also makes it easier yeah. uh, uh, for people to believe that that value, you were just saying earlier, you know, one of the issues with the art market is letting people know that value will persist, because we have the competing fresh to the market idea with the more you can see transactions, the more you can feel like, well, that's mm -hmm. a stable and, you know, somewhat permanent value uh, to the object. No, you're absolutely right. But there's, there's one point also that, um, that I want to make, you know, the whole reason why this has become such a big part of the business is because as auction houses, we're still very uniquely positioned to find the works of art, you know, that is something that, you know, we have that extraordinary knowledge of where works are, we have those relationships, which are, they run very deep and are, are varied, you know, and when you have got a team together like we have at Philips now, where, you know, a lot of our colleagues have got years and years of experience and know not just the collectors, but also the collections, that is something that is, you know, makes it very special and, and of course, that then also attracts people in the business who want to partake. Well, you know, that, that reminds me of something I did want to ask you. Um, when uh, we spoke with uh, Ed Dolman uh, oh. in one of these podcasts, he talked about uh, you and his sort of view that German art in particular was yeah. a sort of uh, an area of opportunity. And I don't think it's... Um, 
uh, a secret that you are a smaller auction house and therefore you have <laughs> to be far more uh, strategic about Very how true. you're going to go after uh, things. So I, I wanted to ask first about just sort of, you know, mm. you were involved in one of the uh, seminal zero auctions. I was, absolutely. And, and that sort of opened up a whole category that still continues to be rolling. So I thought, absolutely. would you mind sort of telling that st story no, and then no, we can no. talk a little bit more I, I about would, German art? I would love to because, you know, that's an area that I'm very passionate about. And um, and we actually ve worked very closely with a collector. It, um, it's a collector called Gerhard Lenz who started buying zero art um, very early on in the 1960s and he is the generation that came through the war and he ascribed it himself he said Europe was rubble you know it didn't matter where you were it was bombed out it was rubble and you could see far and um, he found this group of artists that were all you know connected but in their individual pockets in Italy in Holland in Belgium in Germany and um, they all started creating art, the zero movement, that was free of the past, that was free, that was a, f a f future vision and a unifying vision in Europe. And he was part of that right from the beginning. And zero, to him, needed to receive more attention. So he's always made his collection available for exhibitions. He um, was lending, he was supporting, he um, was writing and publishing. But he said, you know, Zero also needs to have an art market success because that will change things. And that was the idea that came, you know, to do the sale with him, with his collection, um, and to really give, um, as he said, you know, to give Zero one big final gift from him. So instead of donating his collection to a museum, he brought it to the market and it worked. You know, it was a phenomenal collection. It was some, a story that hadn't been told and the art is just extraordinarily good and found homes. And on the back of that, of course, we then had the Zero exhibition here at the Guggenheim. I, I was going to ask you, and probably you don't want to comment, but it almost feels like that wouldn't have happened without the um, the sale. Not that the, it wouldn't have happened art historically, but it, it certainly seemed to engage the community around mm. a place like the Guggenheim yeah. that, that uh, uh, it certainly made it easier. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't dare to sort of claim to have, um, you know, that direct impact on curators but you know it really broadened the consciousness and it also led to individual exhibitions that were phenomenal for um for Heinz Mack and 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 other artists and it also led for some of these artists to be rent represented by major international galleries and you now have Uecker at the Levi Govi gallery you know you've seen his prices not just go up in world records in that auction, but then suddenly sustain themselves. And, you know, he's an artist who's turning, who's turned 80 a few years ago, you know, on that high level there forwards. And the other thing that happened, which was amazing, is that the next art fair you went to, you saw in the booth zero walls. You know, it was a focus. Um, Sperona Westwater had an amazing show. David Zwirner is working with Skornhoven. So it was really something that... that changed the market and you know and I have to applaud the collector Mr. Lenz who who genuinely wanted to do this and wanted to give a last gift as he called it to zero. Well I, it certainly seems like you know just thinking to what happened in October mm. that it I don't know that this is a dividing line but it certainly felt like this last season the distinction between the um, uh, Italian art and zero and the Italian art and the the, the contemporary sales 
was immaterial. There, mm. It was all uh, uh, of uh, the same conversation, uh, the same true. sort of cross of uh, or amalgam of different sorts of collectors. I mean, uh, certainly the the abstract nature of it mm-hmm. helps in this uh, world where I there's a lot of. So. I mean, that sort of fits with the Gerhard Richter success story of you know uh, an artist becoming yeah. quite global because of uh, the abstract nature of the the work. And I presume you know these are. What do they say? Overdetermined. You can't really tease out anyone as being the answer. But but the idea of this being sort of a separate category seems to be over. It's it's blue chip art. Now. It's blue chip art now, and I think that's absolutely true. Mm-hmm. And so, having succeeded there, what what do you do? To follow up on that, since huh. you know we know so much of what what the auction business is about, taking the market knowledge of a sale, the demand that you see, the things that uh, excite people, and then thinking, well, if they like this, maybe we can give them the, uh, that, or the underbidders sort of telling you they want more of uh, X or Y. Uh, how does the success of zero sort of translate into you're coming to Phillips? What and- we're doing now, yeah, absolutely. I think. You're right. You know, it's always exciting when you when you can see an opportunity and and then you you know you, you turn it into a real life success. Um, and the best thing is if you get entrusted with collections. You know, that is something very very special because you know you you have a whole that somebody has put together years and years ago, and that is that's magnificent when you can. And and then you have the opportunity to tell that story again and draw attention to it. So if we are coming straight to this auction, you know, something that we're really, really proud of is that we have two private collections here for sale. And one, which was looked after by a colleague of mine, Uke Joffre, for many, many years, um, non-competitive, but the most exquisite Picasso and Matisse drawings, and consigned by collectors who themselves have got an extraordinary history. Mr. Aberbach, who um, was the owner of these works, was also the one who discovered Elvis and Johnny Cash. And, you know, is this extraordinary Austrian emigre who came to the United States and became a huge success story. His brother was an art dealer here in New York. Together, they put together an extraordinary collection and, again, were extraordinarily generous and gifted over a thousand works to museums. But left a few works for us to bring, you know, to the market this time round and present it as a rediscovery, which it is because nobody had seen them before. And that excitement is palpable, you know. And when you're talking through what does this mean for Phillips, I think it shows Phillips is really relevant in 20th century, not just in the very contemporary side that was a stronghold over Phillips. So in the broader picture of what we're talking, we are definitely positioning ourselves with the sale and, you know, with the next sale in London, where we already have an amazing 1932 Picasso consigned as a house that is truly the house for the 20th and 21st century. And that's something that we're excited about here. And and in terms of, um, there's been a search over the last, uh, I don't know, it feels like a, a year and a half in a big way and probably longer for what you might term sort of undervalued historical masters, you know, either so. either the the of so. a good example of people who very well defined complete careers uh, or, or 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 careers that have you know uh, uh, ended in, in the last uh, you know half century, but for one reason or another aren't valued at, at uh, where where some of their peers are. Correct. 
Uh, and that seems to be both a long process and part of what you were talking about earlier yeah. with the new collectors of being able to, to get people involved and understand that these are, are the artists who are going to gain in value, not necessarily the ones who are already at a very high uh, valuation. I absolutely agree with you. And that's where you have to be smart. And you also sometimes have to think about cross categories. And that's something that um, we do very well here at Philips. In our sale now, we have work by, um, in the contemporary sale or 20th century sale by Carmen Herrera. And it is one of her great, great paintings from 1956. People that know her work very well, and I'm, I'm learning, but I'm, I'm, that's not my, my in-house expertise. Tell me this is in her top 10 paintings. And then you realize, you know, here's this artist, Cuban born, who's 102, working in New York, that's on a sort of global awareness, is not there yet. Yes, she's had recognition here, but there is a lot more that can happen there. And you see this, and then you have something that is phenomenally good by her, and you bring it in the right context, and it is sold with Picasso, and it is sold with, let's go to the other end, Stingel. Um, you are, you have that opportunity to, to focus on something. And we, we try to do this wherever, wherever we can and wherever we, we see an opportunity. Um, in our next sale in London, we thought it would actually be very interesting to look at artists that work with, with clay. Um, again, something so many brilliant artists have done, you know, from Rebecca Warren to Lucio Fontana. But to actually think, hmm, this is something that deserves a little attention and a focus. So we are working with Francesco Bonami, who's um, you know, very fortunate to have him as one of our advisors, to curate a section, maybe a section, maybe become a sale, we don't know yet. Um, we're at the beginning of it. But it was sort of, you're right, we haven't done this before. Nobody has really done this before. And there's something so immediate about that medium. You know, There's something so wonderful to see the artist's working process. That, um, and the collectors, uh, are, are, I take it, are responding to this, yeah. that if you can provide a, yeah. a theme, I mean, we've been, been experimenting over the last uh, several years with this idea of theme sales, mm. uh, uh, often sort of built around maybe two uh, open-ended themes, you know, small works or you know, some of these masterpiece th Absolutely. things. And, all. and it sounds like what you're suggesting is if you can get down closer to either uh, something about a medium or a time period, you can help sort of create the conversation for collectors that will generate the interest and competition. Yeah, and you can also have um, you know, a story about um, you know, when you're approaching a potential seller or consigner, or not even somebody who would think about it, and you say, that could be a really smart way to position your work. You know? and, and you have a different way of connecting with a collector, and I think that is very important for us, because that allows us to, um, you know, to to also, you know, to shine through with expertise, to work on your expertise if you haven't quite gotten there, um, and to um, and to use that expertise um, to connect with some collectors who might not have been interested generally in just the run of the mill, call it, you know, your your average twentieth century sale. So if you do it well, it's a, it's a really really great way to connect with collectors. And do you think it, it matters whether it happens sort of at the high end or, or the, the middle of the market? I mean, uh, I, I'm sort of thinking about the uh, Corbusier paintings that have been sold in the last few, few years, I think all from the same source. But, mm. you know, in, in that sort of it, uh, a familiar figure in a uh, new way, adding value to these uh, uh, paintings. But those are not 
you know, that's that's not a, a, a small item to buy for two, three million dollars on the idea that other people will recognize his um, uh, a painting and all. But maybe that's sort of the way it works, that it's better to to get in at, at that level than to try and convince people to buy things in the hundred to several hundred thousand range and the hope that it becomes, you know, more thoroughly accepted. Kind of need to get the right mix, I think, and you you always do need to have um, you do need to have you know the star lot, you know the the piece that attracts the the one that allows you to bring in the top collectors and um, and then discover something in the process. You know we have a wonderful collection here from um, from California from Betty and Stanley Scheinbaum, and we have an extraordinary amount of Henry Moore sculptures here because they were just passionate about him in the late 50s, early 60s. And you know a lot of them are very much as you would call mid-value pieces. You know selling today in our day sale, but some of them like really very special. You know there's one that isn't very close and is thinking to what um, Barbara Hepworth was doing and it's $150,000 but you know that's a piece you can talk to somebody who will spend $25 million happily because you're just going like look at us it's fabulous it's interesting so you need to get the mix right Um, but without without a star lot um, in today's world um, you might not attract the global attention and we do need that like everybody does, you know, you need to have some really extraordinary pieces, some high value pieces to be part of that big discourse. And and it sounds like you're also suggesting that if you can embed that star lot within a framework clay, that helps make a more direct connection with the other works you're putting together than just Absolutely. simply saying, hey, we've got this great thing. And but also, this, did you yeah. notice over here? Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> Absolutely. Because it's, it's that combining that sense of discovery with leading people in through the market mm. into what they think the, the next thing is. Yeah. And, and is there anything else? I mean, it's funny, you just mentioned Barbara Hepworth, who mm. uh, struck me as exactly the story we were talking about yeah. of, of, you know, uh, uh, not, not an undiscovered uh, uh, artist by any means, but the value keeps rising mm-hmm. as, um, I think, you know, people uh, uh, re- reinforcing each other all uh, accept, uh, uh, you know, the quality of her work yeah. and uh, uh, the range of it. Are there other artists you uh, sort of think of uh, as being sort of gets of, uh, you know, the place that uh, the, is the next opportunity, like Carmen Herrera, uh, uh, so someone more 20th century, or am I putting you on the spot? No, 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 absolutely not. Um, there, are, there are always artists that we think um, are about to make a jump, you know, and this can be with a young artist, you know, and you keep an eye out where the exhibitions are, what the build-up is to that, and then, you know, if you can um, bring that into your auction, that's a that's an exciting thing because you know you you nailed it. So you have to be also very much in touch with, you know, relatively young art, what's going on in the museum worlds, and what's a good example of that. That's something that you know is, is very much part of our thinking. And then when it comes to putting an auction together, as you know, you're always um, in the middle of um, of what's available and what you want to get. But I think even the best-known artists have got areas that um, have got room to grow. And so when we talk about German art, you know, I, I love German artists, as you know, and I've been, you know, I've been able to work with some extraordinary masterpieces and some fantastic collections all the way through my life. Um, and um, I 
actually wrote my dissertation on Anselm Kiefer. And we've had a lot with German art where, you know, you talk about the 60s, you talk about the time under Joseph Beuys at the Academy, and you've got all these amazing works coming out. You then, you know, at the later end, you talk about, you know, Gerhard Richter, who's found his own language and abstraction, and, you know, how extraordinary are these works from 1988 onwards. But there's also that period that I'm really fascinated in, which is 1982, you know, the time of the Zeitgeist exhibition at the Martin Gropius Bau or um, the spirit of new paintings in in London. And wonderful work by these artists being made at that moment. And so, you know, I haven't got anything from that period yet. But, you know, those are ways that I like to think as well, you know, not just let's get another Richter or let's get another, but, you know, where is there something that makes sense? Well, that, that seems to be the, the secret of the art market, uh, is that, that when one set of value is established in, in either a, a part of a body of work, that coming to the, the next mm-hmm. piece and being able to show people and get them excited about, about it, give them that sense of buying in yeah. uh, uh, and, and, and spreading the word uh, uh, makes a great deal of sense. And I'm also, uh, I'm always struck by, it's, it's rare the artist who comes completely out of nowhere, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, uh, to suddenly be terribly valuable and, and stay uh, terribly valued. It's much more uh, common that, you know, the artist hiding in plain sight that everyone knows about. And then we just, you know, I, I think of, often of Calder that way. It's yes. like, you know, it's not like Alexander Calder was um, anything but an extremely world-famous ar- ar- artist. And yet there was a, a moment over the last five years where the, everything just kept going up, sure. uh, uh, seemingly with no outside uh, a provocation. To, to... No, but, you know, part very much of the globalization, you know. And Calder is an artist who really is collected across the globe. And you did have a whole new buying community coming in and wanting colder and I think that had a lot to do with the rise in prices you know when you when you suddenly you know we're in this amazing moment in time when um, works of art 20th century works of art are being collected everywhere and um, and of course then is the question what works of art uh, is everybody looking at, or could everybody be interested in? And I think Kohler was one of those artists that just made sense immediately to a very, very wide collecting base suddenly. Are, are we uh, politely saying Asian buyers, or are we really say, saying global buyers, South American, Gulf states, you know... Uh... Asian as well, obviously. It's interesting because global always changes. Um, And of course, right now, Asia is the strongest market, Um, full stop. We very much focus on Asia. For us, Hong Kong is as important as London and New York is. You know, we really are building Philips with those three legs in place. And that's um, that's crucial. And the amount of new collectors that we come in, see coming in season after season from Asia is, you know, it's extraordinary, it's infectious. There's something truly, truly happening there. And um, and that is, um, I think we're really only still at the beginning of that as well, which is, which is amazing. But then, of course, you've got other areas of the world that can be very, very strong and can come in from all sorts of, whether it's, you know, um, countries in the East, um, whether it is in the Gulf states, you can have you know, years where the Qatari buying spree was one of the main driving forces in the art market um, to be then taken over by somebody else who comes in, you know. So 
the global view does shift and change, um, but it's 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 still developing and evolving. Um, so. The last thing I'm going to ask you is just in the context of that global view, you're, we, we alluded to earlier that uh, you used to work at a big house, you now work at a small one, and you just mentioned these, you know, anchored in the three locations. Mm. Uh, and and I'm, I'm curious whether you feel uh, you are doing your job or need to do your job differently now that you are in this uh, a position sort of in between the behemoths or whether because everything's become global uh, and all there's um, a certain element where you're on the same footing, uh, you know, at least in the sense that you're dealing with a lot of the same cl clients and it's more a question of getting to the right material. It's really interesting to say that. And we are very ambitious here at Philips, you know, we do want to break the duopoly, and I think we are on our way, you know, which is which is really important. And we want to build it, and we we want to build the auction house for the 20th and 21st century. We want to be strong in our cross categories. We want to be strong in design, in watches, in photography, in editions, in Latin American art, in um, in Asian art, um, and and bring that together as the only thing we do. So, yes, life has changed. Um, it's exciting. You know, it's it's sort of, um, I feel like I work in a 200-year-old um, startup company yeah. in many ways. I'm not alone, though, which is amazing. We've got Ed Dolman, our CEO, and a lot of brilliant colleagues from, um, from my old world, but also from Christie's who've come together. And we've all come together with this um, spirit of wanting to make this happen. You know, we've taken big steps in our lives to leave different positions, um, and we want to make this happen. So there is an exciting sense of ambition, of camaraderie, of team spirit, um, and of working hard because we're playing the catch-up game. And um, it's... Um, well, it seems it's to be working. It seems to be working. You're getting bigger uh, consignments. You, you know, certainly uh, uh, in in specific artists can play uh, at the same level. Uh, you know, based on both mm -hmm. your experience and uh, uh, expertise. And there are, you know, again, because there's the the discovery is important mm. it's as valuable to have you know an interesting uh lot that no one's ever seen before Absolutely. uh you know I, I was thinking of the joan mitchell that uh yeah. downstairs no, uh, wonderful 1951 <laughs> yeah, I, 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 it's more that that being able to walk in and see something you totally unexpected yeah. that i think is, is sort of my point about leveling the play, playing field yeah and i think one of the um big big advantages is that you know we are a smaller company but we are, for what we do, we are well-staffed, you know, for the 20th and 21st century. And it's, it's very liberating not to have the rest. And we're also a company that I think loves to do partnerships. And, you know, we are, for instance, partnerships with um, Aurel Bucks, Aurel Russo and Watches. And, you know, what a brilliant partnership has that been, you know, a few years. And together we're number one in Watches. And... It still means we keep light on infrastructure. It still means that we can take decisions of what we want to do because we, we are freer in that sense. And also one of the most liberating things for me, and this is um, I think this is a very um, interesting point when it comes to the bigger auction houses. I myself was caught in that dilemma 
of how do you redefine the 19th, 20th, and 21st century. Impressionist to modern art, contemporary art, maybe something very young. What do you do? So the answer right now is you put it all in one week and mash it together. Here at Philips, we don't have that kind of, you know, we don't have that kind of um, backlog or whatever you want to call it. You the know, baggage. You're, you're baggage. Thank you. That was the word. We don't have the baggage. You are, you're not. You're not stuck with an mod sale that uh, is an expectation and a department built around it that it's very We're hard not. for them to let go, go. And I mean, this is this is always the difference between legacy companies and new ones. Is you are able to do things, and and it is it is fascinating the way the schedule has worked out to sort of solve the problem mm -hmm. of these things being kept apart yeah. in, in not in the way anyone would have expected though okay exactly. we're just going to make an intense two weeks a really intense one week <laughs> yeah. wasn't the solution I think people were looking for not at all not at all but as you say uh, it allows us to really think you know um, does it make sense does it fit in is it is it the right thing is this the way you know we see the 20th and 21st century and 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 I think that's where we um you know, where I think we'll make an impact going forward. I really do. I think you will, too. Thank you. Thank you very much, Cheyenne. <laughs> this has been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure, too. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Artelligence Podcast. Visit us at artmarketmonitor.com. 